Two, you on eight. Welcome to EMS Cast, where we provide high-level education for you, the providers on the streets. And I am joined again today by Dr. Maria Moreira, who joined us last episode to talk about complicated deliveries in the field. And if you didn't catch that episode, just as a review, she is a professor at the University of Colorado. She's the medical director for continuing education and SIM in the Office of Education at Denver Health. And she's a director of professional development and well-being in the emergency department at Denver Health. I'm super excited to have her back again today to talk about what happens after the delivery and complications postpartum. And the big one that we're going to worry about in the field, if a patient just delivered is the postpartum hemorrhage. So Maria, thanks so much for joining us again. Well, thanks for having me again. So talk to me about postpartum hemorrhage. Why is this important for us to know about and know how to treat? Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, I think one is because hemorrhage is bad, right? I mean, yes, all bleeding eventually stops, but we want to, you know, prevent it and stop it as much as we can and make sure we can resuscitate patients appropriately. But this is something that we do see. And the incidence really varies. And it's dependent on sort of the definition that you use. And we'll talk a little bit about the definition of that in in a second. But a reasonable probably estimate is that this happens in between one to 5% of deliveries. And the mortality of this is about 2%. But that really Really varies worldwide. Some countries have a mortality or death rates that are close to 20%, which is significant. And then there's also up to a 15% risk of recurrence in, in subsequent pregnancy. So that's why it's really good and important to ask sort of this in the history, right? What complications did you have in your other deliveries? Because that might at least help you to think about, hey, I might need to deal with this postpartum hemorrhage and be ready for it. Why is this so bad? Why is bleeding in this area so life-threatening? Yeah, well, if you think about it, we talked about in the previous episode when we talked about deliveries, we talked about some of the physiologic changes of pregnancy. And one of the things is that pregnancy is a high volume, low resistance state. And so there is a lot of increased volume now going to the pelvis and to the uterus. And the uterus typically in normal non-pregnant females, the flow to the uterus is about 60 cc's per minute. In pregnancy, it's 600 cc's per minute. So that's 10 times the amount of blood now going to that area. So you can imagine that if that uterus doesn't contract, if there's postpartum hemorrhage of some sort, and we're going to talk about the different causes, but that patient can bleed a lot. And in pregnancy, you're not going to see some changes right away in vital signs. And when we think about it, Yes, once the baby's delivered, you'd say, well, doesn't the mom go back to normal physiology? And no, they don't, right? Because it takes a while, right? That mom's physiology has slowly changed and those changes that have occurred in pregnancy happen slowly and they're going to resolve slowly and go back to normal. So typically we think of pregnant patients being able to lose like two liters of blood and not show you any changes in vital signs, right? So this is something that we need to have a high suspicion of, look for the bleeding because we could be falsely reassured by vital signs. And can you just review that for us real quick? For those who maybe missed last episode, what are the physiologic changes that occur with our vital signs? Sure. So what happens with our vital signs in pregnancy is because pregnancy is a high volume, low resistance state. And what happens in pregnancy is you get this peripheral vasodilation. So that's why we get a drop in blood pressure. Now, it's not a significant drop. So, you know, if my pre-pregnancy blood pressure was 120 systolic, probably my pregnancy one will be 118 or 116, right? It's not going to be a huge drop. Diastolic comes down a little bit more, probably about 10 points. But again, this isn't like these huge drops. If they were normally, you 
know, 100 and now they're 90 or they're 80, that's not normal, right? That's their bleeding or something is going on. So that's one of the things that you'll see is sort of that hypotension and not really hypotension, but lower blood pressure in pregnancy. Hypertension is never normal in pregnancy, right? So above your pre-pregnancy is never normal. The other thing that happens is the heart rate goes up a little about 10 to 15 points. So typically what you could expect in pregnancy is most pregnant patients are probably going to have a heart rate of 80 to 90, right? If you're talking about heart rates above 100, you got to think about that something else is going on. Definitely above 110, but certainly even above 100, I'd start to think, is this really just because they're pregnant and they normally ran at 90 and now they're 100? Or do I need to start thinking about something else going on? And then we talked a little about last time, the changes that happens as far as the respiratory system. And pregnant patients have increased in their tidal volume, so they breathe deeper, but they have decreased respiratory reserve. So functional residual capacity goes down, so there's less there in the tank. But yet there's increased consumption, about 15 to 20%. They're going to increase in their consumption, but their reserves are decreased. And so now you have this state where they need increased oxygen, but they have decreased reserves. Their normal PCO2 is going to be about 27 to 32 because of all these physiologic changes that are happening. So these patients typically will need oxygen early on. And honestly, you know, I heard somebody say one time, you do a nasal cannula for the mom, you do a non-rebreather for the baby. I just say that you want to keep the O2 sats greater than 95% for the baby, because then you could be assured that the baby's probably getting enough oxygen and their PO2 is okay. And this is, you're talking about pre-delivery. When this, you're is pre-delivery. On, on this is pre-delivery. This is pre-delivery. Yeah. yeah, this pre-delivery. And then after the patient's delivered, I'd probably still give them a little oxygen, but you don't need to keep them <laughs> above yeah. 95%. Now you can, you can tolerate a little bit lower numbers as long as you feel the mom's getting enough oxygen. And so what is this patient going to look like? I guess, say, you know, we're on scene, they either just delivered or they delivered with us. What are my next steps and what am I looking out for? What's going to start to concern me? Hey, this, this is actually a lot of bleeding. This, what defines postpartum hemorrhage? Yeah. And that's the difficult part, right? Like it depends on what you read and there's a lot of different organizations and they all define it slightly differently. You know, you can look at the World Health Organization, the American College of Obstetricians, the Royal College. <laughs> I mean, they have slightly different definitions. Some use blood loss of greater than equal to 500 within 24 hours after birth for minor and then greater than a thousand for severe. Others use just greater than and equal to a thousand or any blood loss with signs or symptoms of hypovolemia within 24 hours. And that's probably what I would say. I'm like, if you're seeing signs and symptoms of hypovolemia, or you're seeing a lot of bleeding and you're providing some fundal massage and the uterus feels a lot boggy, then you're probably dealing with postpartum hemorrhage and you need to do something. Okay. So in the pre-hospital setting, if patient is delivered, I'm starting to notice a lot of ongoing bleeding that's not slowing, especially if I start to see any changes in vital signs, Mm -hmm. or I'm not feeling that uterus contract, I'm worried. What's, I guess, before we start on what I'm going to do to treat it, what what are the causes of this? Yeah. So an easy way to think about this is the four T's. And some of them is, you know, when you think about the T is like, how do you make it a T? But so here are the four T's. Tone is the most common cause. This can occur in about one in 40 cases, and it really accounts for about 75% of cases of postpartum hemorrhage. So tone is really kind of the big thing, right? Because if you remember, this uterus has gotten bigger, bigger, and bigger, and now it needs to contract down. And the way that you get hemostasis is the contraction of that uterus because now it constricts those vessels, right? And you stop bleeding, and you need your coagulation factors to work too. But so tone is going to be the biggest culprit. The next one is trauma. And this could be, you know, it could be lacerations. Um, Typically, that's what we're talking about is like big tears and stuff like that, where there could be a lot of bleeding from that. 
The next one is tissue. And this is really what we're talking about is retained placenta. And then the last one is the coagulopathy, but we call it thrombin to make it a T, right? So, <laughs> but this is sort of coagulopathy. For some reason, the patient is just not clotting up, right? They have DIC, they have something else going on, but their coagulation cascade is just not working properly the way it needs to be. So those are your four T's, your tone, trauma, tissue, and thrombin. Okay. Now that I have an understanding of what might cause this ongoing bleeding, I have this patient in front of me, bleeding's not stopping. I'm worried they're hemorrhaging. What's your approach? Yeah. So I'm going to give you my way to think about it, to hit all of them at the same time in an algorithmic manner. So what I would start with is I have this patient in front of me. Basically what I'm dealing with is hemorrhage, hemorrhagic shock perhaps, right? So the ABCs apply here. Here now, though, we're prioritizing the C, right? So we're kind of doing CAB in a sense, right? So first, if I'm in the hospital, I can call for blood products. If your ambulance system has blood products, that's something certainly that you can potentially think about or at least consider or have ready to go. If a uterotonic has not been given, because remember that the thing is that the uterus is not contracting properly is going to be the most likely thing. If you have uterotonics, and I know many ambulances do not have oxytocin, this may be something that maybe we should consider doing because if you give oxytocin, so the number needed to treat to prevent one case of a postpartum hemorrhage is seven. So it might be worthwhile that if you get to a delivery and even if the baby has already been delivered, giving 10 of oxy IM or even five to 10 IV, like that might prevent some postpartum hemorrhage. So something to consider for my EMS uh, folks out there. But, but anyway, if you don't have oxytocin, which is more likely in some of our ambulance systems, you can also give the baby to the mom and have the baby latch, right? And that, there you get your natural oxytocin. So that's one way to kind of try to do that. Also, at the same time, you need to think about TXA. And this is one gram of TXA. TXA, you know, the reason we do this, and I will tell you, this is still in our hospital algorithm for postpartum hemorrhage. This came from a big trial. This is the woman trial. It involved 193 hospitals in 21 countries, right? So you could imagine this was a very heterogeneous group and with, with very different styles of practice and what was available to be able to take care of these patients. But what they showed was a 19% reduction in death due to bleeding. So that's why it's still sort of in those algorithms. Ideally, though, you want to give that TXA early on, right? Ideally, within three hours, as we know from all TXA studies out there. So ideally, you want to give it early. So patient bleeding in front of you, if you have TXA, go ahead and give them the TXA. If you can, if you have oxytocin, I'd give them oxytocin. If not, try to use sort of like the baby latching on and feeding to give some natural oxytocin. Have someone provide some fundal massage, right? Because what we're doing here is trying to get that uterus to contract. So this is just massaging over the fundus. So feel where the top of the uterus is and just massage. Then I start looking, right? Now I'm looking at the perineum. And the first thing, just because it's easy, like just look for tears, like look if there's anything there. You know, typically what we say, if there is a tear in the hospital setting, we'll just quickly repair it just to get it out of the equation. You know, you could just put pressure on it to anything, you know, if there's something that you can do, but really just pressure over it might be all you need to do. Then you need to go in and sweep the uterus for any retained products if that placenta has delivered, right? If the placenta hasn't delivered, then that's not, you know, then you know the placenta's in there. But this is more likely after the placenta's delivered is when you're going to see this postpartum hemorrhage, not beforehand. So 
you can look at the placenta. I always think it's hard because the placenta always, there's tons of nooks and crannies. So I don't know if there's something missing or not. So for most people, what I say is, is go in, sweep the uterus, make sure there aren't any placental products in there. And then what we can do is buy manual massage. And that's one hand in the inside that's either going to be in the back of the uterus or in front of the uterus and the hand above. What you're doing is you're trying to get sort of that uterus between both hands and squeeze that uterus between. And this is a pretty brutal, like you're in there putting a lot of pressure. It's not gentle pressure. It's it's definitely putting a lot of pressure. But that's kind of helping to kind of create getting that uterus to contract as well. In the hospital, one of the things that we'll do is if the bladder has not been emptied, we'll empty the bladder. Because the problem is that when the bladder's full, it keeps that uterus from contracting down. And so it will empty that bladder to help with that. There are definitely other medications that do the same as oxytocin or are sort of in that category, such as misoprostol, methogen, or hemabate. So we can always have an option of giving another if one hasn't worked. And then the next step, if we cannot stop that bleeding with bimanual pressure, then this is when we start thinking about packing. And, you know, I recognize that you're not going to be doing all this stuff in the pre-hospital setting. I would say in the pre-hospital setting, the most important thing is probably getting the TXA on board, anything we can do from a tone perspective, doing the fundal massage. If you see like a laceration, putting pressure on it and getting them to the hospital as soon as possible and doing your normal resuscitative processes. That's what I think you're going to do in the pre-hospital setting. Once they get to the hospital, then we can go ahead and empty their bladder and, and the bimanual massage and trying to get that contraction down. We can also then do this uterine packing. So we have a couple of different options. There's what's called the Bakri balloon, and that's sort of a, an OB balloon that's specifically for this. And you can put about 500 cc's into that balloon. But you know, those are hard to come by in the emergency department sometimes. And so we can do other things. We usually have Minnesota tubes, we can use the gastric balloon of a Minnesota tube, which goes up to 500. You could put multiple Foley's or the reality is you can just grab any packing like you know, any sterile towels or other curlex and just pack that uterus. What we're doing is creating that tamponade. These patients are later going to need to go to IR or to the OR. I think in our time, we will also see Reboa potentially used for this as well. But again, those are things that will happen on the hospital end. But in the pre-hospital, I would say do your normal resuscitative processes with the caveat of adding that fundal massage, looking to potentially put pressure on any bleeding points and making the patient as comfortable as possible during that time as well. Perfect. So for me as a pre-hospital provider, I'm most often going to see this after the placenta delivers. Mm -hmm. When the placenta delivers, I may want to take a look at it just to make sure it looks complete yeah. to me. Sometimes it's difficult to tell, but if it's obviously missing half seems torn or, or anything, I might be concerned there's retained products. Then if the bleeding is going on, the first thing I want to think about are, do I have medications to help with this? Do I have TXA? If so, give it. Do I have any uterotonic such as oxytocone? If so, give it. Mm -hmm. If not, or even if I do ask mom to see if she can have infant latch right. because latching infant or, or breastfeeding infant is going to naturally release some of that oxytocin to help the uterus contract. Then I'm going to take a look and see if I see any lacerations of the perineum. And if so, I'm going to apply direct pressure to them. At the same time, I'm going to be applying that fundal massage, which is a very aggressive, firm pressure on the top of that fundus to help mm -hmm. stimulate that uterus to contract. If I don't see any laceration, I may attempt a bimanual fundal massage where you're essentially massaging from inside the vagina as well as from the fundus to really try to get that uterus to clamp down. 
if I noticed any missing placenta, maybe I try a uterine sweep, although I, my own confidence in the emergency yep. department about <laughs> being able to do this accurately is iffy at best. And so being able to do this in an ambulance would be terrifying, but sure, maybe you can try that. Biggest pieces are rushing to the hospital, giving blood if you have blood, giving urotonics if you have urotonics, giving TXA if you have it, and then doing that by manual massage. Yeah, I think the most important part, I again would reiterate in the pre-hospital is doing your normal resuscitative processes. And then, you know, because tone is the most common thing is doing that fundal massage. And if there's any uterotonics you can give, that's great, right? And then like, like you said, or, or have the baby kind of try to like create some natural uterotonic. I do want to make one point that when we do the bimanual massage, because I think this sometimes gets confused, your hand isn't inside the uterus for the bimanual. It's outside the uterus. You know, the hand that's sort of inside the vagina, it's outside of the uterine wall and not inside. And then the one above is outside. But I agree with you. I think, you know, from a pre-hospital setting, I think the most important part is to get them to the hospital as soon as possible, because then you're going to have more blood products. You can kind of see if coagulation is having an effect, you know, but the things that you can do pre-hospital is getting that TXA on board if you have it, getting a urotonic on board if you have it, and then trying the best you can to help with that contraction portions with the fundal massage and doing some aggressive fundal massage or like tamponading any potential bleeding from a laceration. And that's probably the most helpful thing as they're getting to the hospital. And it's also helpful for us to know like what's been tried and what's coming in, right? So we can get other medications available so we can get our obstetricians available because the reality is most of these patients are going to, depending on what is causing the bleeding, but a lot of these patients, especially if they're going down this algorithm a long way, are going to go to an OR or to IR to stop the bleeding. Yeah. So the vast majority of these postpartum hemorrhages occur within the first 24 hours, but they can occur later. Mm -hmm. Talk to me about this. Yeah. So this is sort of your secondary postpartum hemorrhage. And so the things that are the causes or most likely causes of this postpartum hemorrhage are one, retained products, right? So you could always, I mean, these patients are delivered, you know, everything seems to go well. Somebody looked at the placenta, it looked okay, but yet there might be some retained products there, right? And so they come later. This is typically after 24 hours, it could go out to 12 weeks. There are some places that say it's up to six weeks, but but for the most part, we'll say 24 hours to 12 weeks. And so retained products is one of the things. There could be subinvolution of the placental bed. So there might be a part of the placenta that, you know, area where the placenta was that just didn't go back to normal size or didn't go get back to normal and it needs to be taken care of. That might require surgery. There might be other things that they can do for that. And then infection, I think, is the other big one, right? If you have an infection of the uterus and then there that can lead to a lot of this bleeding as well. So those are the things that we think about when we think about secondary postpartum hemorrhage. And again, this will happen 24 hours to about 12 weeks out. Okay. And the big pieces for us, if we encounter this in a patient who says a couple weeks home from the hospital suddenly has this unexplained bleeding again, how are we going to treat them? What are we going to do? Yeah, I mean, at this point, I would get an IV in them, do your ABCs, right? Resuscitate them, give them a little bit of fluid. You know, certainly if they're febrile, you can certainly treat their fever if you needed to. I mean, again, that's not something urgent, right? Because that's just showing you that there's an infection going on. But the main thing, again, I was just, just get IVs in them 
two better than one, but one works well as, as well. And then, you know, giving them a little bit of fluids, making them comfortable and getting them to the hospital. Because this, in this case, really, we need to kind of figure out what is the cause. And so really here, you're emphasizing more your resuscitation, because honestly, we're not going to know what caused this until we in the hospital do like an ultrasound or do like a further exam to see if this is infection versus retained products versus placental bed involution, sub-involution. Yeah. Okay. So you're going to resuscitate this like you would any other critically ill patient. And then you're just going to want to keep in the forefront of your mind, any sort of infectious symptoms. So right. asking about infectious symptoms so you can report those. If those aren't present, then it's going to take more investigation in the hospital to figure out what's causing yeah. this. So yeah. resuscitate them, get them to the hospital quickly. Perfect. All right. Thank you so much for this algorithmic approach. Can you just summarize it and take it home for us? Yeah. So I think, you know, the main thing is I want everybody to think about postpartum hemorrhage on every pregnant patient that you run. So, you know, certainly you're not going to encounter this until they deliver, but think about it and be prepared for it. And especially if you're delivering this patient in the ambulance or at the house, have an algorithm approach. So think about your four T's. Think about tone, most common, right? Followed by trauma, followed by tissue, followed by thrombin. The things that you can do right away do basically just resuscitate them like you would resuscitate anyone else. But remember your TXA for these patients early on could be helpful. And remember if you have uterotonics to give them early on. Again, I'm going to put a plug. I'm going to have to talk to our EMS system about maybe uterotonics in the ambulance or just at least oxytocin to kind of maybe even preventative potentially. And then, but, you know, and then look for sort of obvious bleeding, right? Is there an obvious laceration that you can just apply some pressure? Because that might be all you need to at least stop the bleeding from that area until we can do something about it. And then drive as fast as you can to get them to the hospital like you would do with anyone that's really critically ill. Perfect. Thank you so much, Dr. Marrera. I love that. Think about this on every pregnant patient. Don't only think about this on every pregnant patient, but think about this on every drive to a quote unquote mm -hmm. imminent delivery. Think about our last episode. Go back and listen to that. Think about the complications that might occur during delivery. Think about how you're going to handle that while you're driving to the call. And then as soon as you run through that algorithm in your head, run through the postpartum hemorrhage algorithm just so that you're prepared if anything does go wrong. Mm -hmm.